Hey there, listener. You know what would be really great? I mean, by golly, fantastic. If you could take 10 seconds right now to give our show a rating, that would be really terrific. However, you're listening to this episode right now, Spotify, Apple, Winamp, whatever it is, if you can give us a rating and review, we want it. If you're liking what you're hearing, give us that five-star rating. If you don't, please keep it to yourself. The point is rating our show allows us to get discovered more. That's all. Could you do that for me, huh? Could you? Why, thank you so much, listener. I really appreciate you. Welcome one and all to Real Asian Podcast. I am joined today with Renee Praga and an ultra, ultra special guest, someone that I'm absolutely unfamiliar with, Christine Zhuang. Welcome, Christine. Hello. Hey, everyone. What's up? Thanks for having me. Yes, it's good to see you, Christine. By the way, that was a joke. Christine and I have worked closely together in the last five years, so we're Sort of a little beyond unfamiliar. <laughs> yes, we are too familiar. I feel like Ray has inf- infiltrated all parts of my life. <laughs> and I mean, Baldwin like, is included in that. How many different organizations have you guys worked together on, actually? We've worked together in two. Okay. Just two. Okay. Yeah, but they were back to back. So, you know, like sometimes you kind of do for full circle, you run into someone. We literally went from one organization to the next one <laughs> together. <laughs> yes. And Ray will be messaging Baldwin and then messaging me at the same time. So, yes, yes sometimes I'll be working and I'll hear Baldwin like listening to a podcast recording and all of a sudden I'm like, why is Ray's voice in my, <laughs> in my mm-hmm. That's so funny. Christine? Please introduce yourself to our listeners for those that don't know you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hi, everyone. I am Christine Zhuang, she, her, hers. I am currently based out of unceded Ohlone Ramayatish land, which many of you may know as San Francisco, California. Um, I am I am many things. <laughs> I think today I'm joining y'all as the director of community education with Hate is a Virus, which is a grassroots yeah, yeah. nonprofit organization. Yep, Ray knows we work um, in Hate is a Virus together, and so yeah, very honored to be a part of that community. And in general, um, I see myself as a community builder, creative. Um, Plant parent, pet parent. Um, <laughs> that's right. And um, yeah, in connection to Real Asian podcast is Baldwin is my forever roommate. He is my husband. Um, so very honored to be on on the show today. Nice. And we're so excited to have you on. And Baldwin is the show's husband as well. So <laughs> I think there's a lot of commonality there. He's the so show daddy. Excellent. Show daddy. <laughs> we'll call that show daddy. Excellent. So uh, in case you were wondering why Christine is guesting on this podcast, either way, she's always welcome on. Today, we are doing a special episode on the 1987 documentary, Who Killed Vincent Chin, which was recently restored in 2021 by the Academy Film Archive and the Film Foundation. But before we actually dive into the documentary, there is a special screening of the documentary held in LA. That's happening on Thursday, July 14th. It's a joint event by POV, the Japanese American National Museum, and Hate is a Virus So depending on when you're listening to this episode, the event is either coming up or has happened already. We do highly encourage folks, if you are in the area, to go to the screener. 
as it'll feature a panel discussion featuring Renee Tajima Pena, who is one of the producers and directors of the documentary. Huge fan. Regardless, the the documentary will be available uh, for streaming on PBS.org until July 20th, which is also... Renee's birthday. That's right. Mm-hmm. Ooh, <laughs> Happy birthday. Uh, I think they planned it intentionally for that. Too. Absolutely. Renee Tajim uh, uh, Pena and Renee Ya forces coming together. Boom. Yes. July 20th. <laughs> the power of Renee's coming. Alrighty, let's get into it. So usually we we have one of our esteemed co-hosts share their big take on a movie. But for this time, I think given the importance of the documentary and the incident that it covers, um, which is the murder of Vincent Chin, I wanted to give everyone an opportunity actually to share what their biggest takeaway was for them. So after watching the documentary, let's start with you, Renee. What was your big take? Ooh, okay. First of all, I, I think it's really hard to come away with it not feeling enraged, um, feeling uh, despondent, feeling dejected, just like you know, especially if you're someone who has either ties to Detroit or Asian American or or just like a humanist in general. It's like really hard yeah. to not feel failed. Um, and so, uh, but with that, you know, in, in the same sense that unfortunately, like Emmett Till's uh, murder, basically, uh, it, you know, stoked these flames of activism to be able to make it so that, you know, lots of just social justice changes were able to be able to take place very much. So it was the same case with Vincent Chen. So there is this Mm -hmm. hopefulness of being able to then take that rage that you feel and then transform it into something that's going to be powerful and helpful for a community at large. That's an interesting take. I love how you bring up the Emmett Till incident, obviously not, not comparing the two, but kind of referencing how it kind of sparked uh, a, a, a massive movement mm-hmm. within our community. I agree with Renee. It, it's very gutting to watch and despondency is like a way to describe it. But I also just think there's so much discomfort there because of the familiarity of the sort of rhetoric and the stories mm. and the excuses and the, you know, like ways that people just don't see what you see. And so my big takeaway was specifically about that. Um, When we talk about systemic racism or marginalization, we use all these big words that like take us away from that reality of the lived experience where you're coming to something or someone and saying, can you see like what I'm feeling or can you understand? Mm. And people are just like, no, I I don't get why that would be a big deal for you. I Mm. I just don't know about it. (laughs) And so... Um, that was my big takeaway is that the the documentary does a really good job of holding a place for that and like really putting it at the forefront. And, um, you know, not to compare with the Black experience too much, but it sort of reminds me of the same way in which Jordan Peele movies are really unnerving. Because if you're a person of color, you can see exactly what's going on there. Mm-hmm. But if you're not, you might find it comedic or you just don't get it. You know, It, it flies over your head. It flies like, over your I head. I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that that's um, something very important about just like everything we're talking about today, but as well as the documentary. Preach. Real quick, Christine, I actually learned of the Vincent Chin incident, I think during my time at Project by Project. I don't remember if it was you specifically that you talked about 
um, the incident, but I know that it was, it was during the time. Okay. <laughs> most likely it was you. I mean, let's just be real, but I know that it was like when we were kind of going back into the history of important moments of Asian American history. So knowing that knowledge, knowing the history, and obviously you knowing of the incident, what was your big takeaway? How did you feel when you watched the documentary? So I think this case is so significant. It's hard to have just one takeaway. So I have two. <laughs> I have one for the case itself. Your guess, I'll allow it. Thank you. <laughs> one for the case itself, one for the documentary. I think when we look at the historical significance of Vincent Chin's case, of his murder, it is so clear that so many lessons and truths from that case are still incredibly present for us today in 2022. Looking at the ongoing violence, the ongoing anti-Asian rhetoric that is happening, mm -hmm. um, how intersectional that is, right, beyond just the AAPI community. It is Vincent's case, while it happened 40 years ago, it is still present today. It is still happening today for so many people. And that is deeply, deeply significant. Um, and for the documentary itself, it was actually my first time watching it in full in preparation for the screening that we're doing and the panel we're doing with Hate is a Virus. And so many times in movement work and in social justice work, and you know, we talk about these big frameworks and principles, and uh, we rally so many people together that it can be really easy to lose the humanity behind what we're advocating for. And watching this documentary my heart just broke for Vincent Chin, for his family, for his mom, and just seeing mm -hmm. the humanity behind what happened to them, right? Like this, this wasn't just a case or a story. Like Vincent Chin was this real person. The people who were involved in this case were real people whose lives were impacted. And I think just really seeing that and seeing them and, and knowing that even the huge cases that get sensationalized now, those are real people with real stories and lives um, that they've lived and are leaving behind. It was also incredibly significant for me. For me, I pretty much agree with everything that you guys have said so far. Uh, for me, it just reminded how crappy and freaking convoluted our criminal justice system can be. For me, it was just like a reminder of how bad it is. Like for the presiding judge to not even to, to, to make a decision without even getting testimony from other key witnesses. And there's even that clip in the documentary where the presiding judge like, I go through so many cases in a week. Like, I don't got time to do with all this shit. I'm like, oh, my God. that's I was like, that's the worst right. thing ever. That's your job. And this is someone that's <laughs> I just, I, I know. And that's like literally your job. And you literally said that on TV. Um, and then also for Ronald Evans to not even spend like a day not, in not jail. even a day right? not even a day in jail was just so appalling to me that was the biggest thing that really stuck out learning obviously the lot the many facts of the of the case and seeing the pain that the mother was going through i think that was the most jarring for me like she had a lot of screen time but i didn't realize that before learning the case it was just about the case right but the fallout of it and uh, um and the emotional effect that it had on the mom that really stuck out to me. Absolutely. It's interesting because like, you know, for them basically taking the plea deal and, and pleading guilty to manslaughter and only getting three months of like probation and a fine the you know, mm. in the documentary, they were even, they even noted like someone also was charged with manslaughter and they got 13 years. 
you know, so like it's all circumstantial, but it's also like preferential. Mm. And, you know, that I think that was what was so infuriating was just like, you know, when the judge can see themselves in the defendant. Mm. How much more lenient are they going to be? And that basically, you know, they saw themselves in in them. They're like, oh, well, then, you know, it, it could happen to anyone, right? And then just completely dismiss, like, the fact that they took someone's life. Going back to what Christine was saying, like, a whole person whose whole life was basically taken away from them. Not just one time either, right? Not just that first judge. Right. Not just that first case. Helen Zia took it to to federal court That's as right. the first ever um, federal case, civil rights case um, that represented the Asian American community. And even there, they were cleared of all charges, all four counts, y'all right. completely cleared. And so like just the violence and the, the erasure of our experiences that happens not only at a local level, but then at this federal level, I think was also so damaging. Um, and then to see it not only like in the government, in the criminal justice system, but even like Evans and it's their friends, right? They're like, right. we know them. There's no way they could commit this horrible thing. They're just, yeah. they're just, you know, everyday average neighbors. There's no way they yeah, could not do Not a it. racist bone in their body. Not a racist bone in their body. Oh my gosh. Or even that moment when Evans himself is like, I don't see a plight with Asians. I know Asians. I know someone who <laughs> oh once God. tutored an Asian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my best friend's so, Asian. Right. You know, like, that, was a, yeah. that was a and, forehead slap yes. moment for me. And as if proximity erases racism somehow. Um, it's also still very true today. There is actually an article um, that was written by the New York Times back in 2021 where they gave uh, Ron Demons a chance to actually talk a little bit about it. He said that was the only thing that he regret in his life. That was actually the only bad thing he'd ever done in his life mm. was murder in Chen, right? And it was just like, are you kidding me? Are you sure? I know. <laughs> <laughs> outrage it just like it's funny right that you said it was a head slap moment you know like but not your own like going trying to reach through the the screen and just like head slap this guy like <laughs> yeah what are you yeah saying? i mean honestly pretty much anytime they showed they put the camera on him and he was talking i was like just just stop just stop well, the other thing that i want to bring up here is that the time this happens is like what 1982 right that's and right yeah Asians are only allowed back into the United States to immigrate in 1965. So it's only been about 20 years. And before that, you have Chinese Exclusion Act. That is like a lawful thing that, you know, Congress passed Mm -hmm. to stop letting Asians, specifically Chinese people, into the country. Mm -hmm. And then before that, you have People versus Hall in which Chinese were not allowed to stand testimony against white men. And that was a precedent set for a witness of a murder, right? So we're seeing not just othering, but this is like a strain of continued sort of like, like sentiment in the justice system Mm -hmm. that Chinese is not people or are not people that Asians are not people. Because the other thing is, I mean, this is related to Japan tangentially because of the economy. But the Japanese internment was also unlawful, right? We just made up some laws to be like, let's throw a bunch of people in prison. Let's take their land. Let's take their homes, give them to white people. That's what happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's, it's almost like we have to be real about some of these existing things that we try to like wave away with polite fiction that 
you know, inside of America, we're fair to our people and our justice system is like freedom and equality and all of those things. Because, I mean, who counts as a person, right? Yeah, it depends on who. Right. <laughs> only only uh, seven eighths of a person anyway. <laughs> right. You, you know, so, you know, for me personally, Vincent Chan's story is very personal to me because uh, there is like a pretty big Hmong population. And my, my parents and my grandparents, they were uh, living in Michigan at the time. Um, so my older brother was actually born in 1982 um, in Lansing, Michigan, which is only about two hours drive from Detroit. And many Hmong people actually went there because of, you know, the automotive industry and things like that. Right. And so, you know, it, it to be kind of met with this, you know, part of it was, you know, you don't see a lot of like Hmong people joining the activism at this point because we are just arriving in the United States. And so what you're seeing is that for the most part, you know, like Asians are kind of seen as like docile and not uh, usually a community that rises up for activism. And with Vincent Chen, you are seeing this, right? We are finally able to remove ourselves from just surviving to saying we deserve a space here as well. And I think that, you know, that's something that's very important that shows in the documentary. So I think it's really important that you mentioned that the Hmong people were just arriving because this is right after the Vietnam War. That's right. right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are being airlifted from Saigon and like there's refugees, just like Asian, Southeast Asian refugees coming in. And um, they're experiencing these things too, right? Like they're getting pushed into the ghettos. They're in the Tenderloin of San Francisco. They have to deal with all of these like, dangers that they like that are different because they're structured mm -hmm. differently from like a war like zone um and right. so i think that's that's very important to keep in mind that like the chinese have been here since 18 something and they're experiencing like lynchings and chinatown burnings and all sorts of systemic stuff and now a whole bunch of us are here and, and we're getting used to this thing like there's like this systemic you know just like violence and so yeah i think that's important to notice that everyone was like oh hold up i gotta be involved <laughs> you know I, that was pretty much one of the comments that i wanted to make is that it's interesting in the documentary that you do see they, they obviously talk about the incident and when it happened but it really was the work of lily chin and helen zia taking this case and and amplifying it and then you see the involvement from other communities of color like the black community and Vietnamese community and uh Jap like other Asian communities kind of rally together realizing that this is much more than an way bigger than an incident than one man killing another man it was like the attack of a racial group and the injustice the injustice that the racial group got um not having a fair shot of uh, uh, due process and it, right exactly i mean they were facing they were encountering it firsthand i, I actually had uncovered some documents um and some newspaper articles mm. about my about my grandfather who uh, recently passed uh last year um but mm. he lived in michigan basically and resettled there um and lived there for the for the rest of his life once he immigrated to the united states and there was an incident where there were um white hunters who had actually uh shot him with a shotgun and so he Jesus. sustained yeah um injuries and he went to the hospital and and he was fine, but for whatever reason, like my family, like, and this was back in 19... He survived that? He survived it. And this was back in 1979. Um, uh, so this is like when they first come came to the United States. And 
you know, part of it was that he, he happened to be at the right, wrong place at the wrong time, but also at the same time, nothing happened to the person. You know, they talked to him and it was like, oh, it was a misunderstanding and like nothing. And, and then, and my grandfather was, you know, having to have to take care of all these medical bills and things like that. Mm. And, and that actually continues to kind of show in the Midwest. Um, so, you know, we, you see these, these parallels of continued othering um, and, and it, you know, it's just, it's just, it is systemic racism basically that really kind of perpetuates this, you know, like. I, I, me as a white man feeling like I can't have something because you're here and you're going to take it away from me. Right. And there's that aspect of like, you know, the, just because there's immigrants, you know, for whatever reason, there's this, like, I can't have something because you're here. And, and I think that's something that continues to kind of show itself. Like it's been 40 years since that, since the murder. And yet we're still having those same discussions today. Well, also, 40 years is not that long. Like, right. for a human lifespan, that is a long time. But 40 years ago is, like, fall of Soviet Union or something, right? Like, <laughs> there's, I mean, they're still alive, right? I mean, yeah. like, he's, like, 87. Like, he's, like... Right. Yeah, and something that, Renee, you shared, just in response, I think there's this interesting thing that we do where white violence gets placated in in America and somehow gets normalized or kind of explained away. Naturally, the case itself, right? Eben and its bludgeoned Vincent Chin to death. And the verdict was- Chased him too. Chased him, him bludgeoned him to death. And somehow not only the judge, but even Eben and Nitz themselves were able to rationalize or minimize what they did, this incredibly- violent act, right? Just kind of gets minimized. Um, But there were also these other small moments in the documentary itself when, where I felt like it was maybe the genius of the directors, not outright saying it, but just showing it through, through video. There is a moment where you know, they're explaining how the Japanese auto industry was mm-hmm. was really thriving and the way that American auto workers were protesting. And there's this scene where um, I think it's some kind of rally and all these all these white folks are taking turns sl- like with a sledgehammer, like breaking down this car that was, um, I think, probably created so by yeah a Japanese a manufacturer, right? And that was like their form of protest was, let's like beat this car down, like with a yeah. sledgehammer. Let's just take all take that turns car. like breaking it I, down. I hope that hurt car. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, let's just take our aggression out on this car. Um, and at the same time, something I noticed is we're watching that that imagery. Um, but the voiceover was them talking like very shortly after at some point was white folks saying like, oh, there's no way that they could have been violent. Like there's right. like, they're not racist. They're not like, mm. they're not violent people. And it was so interesting to see that overlay of the audio with the visuals that we were seeing of these white folks literally being violent, being aggressive. Um, and yet you're we right. find ways the red flags to, were there. <laughs> yeah, we find ways to like minimize that. I mean, we're, we see that now, right? With all of the mass shootings that are happening so oh, many yeah. side-by-side comparisons where when it is um, a person of color who isn't even being violent or isn't even being a threat, they're met with they're met with a lot of violence. And yet when it is white people who are who 
are mass shooters and are shooting up schools and parades. They're somehow able to be apprehended with no, like they sustain no injuries. We're somehow able to be really peaceful. And then the explanations afterwards are to, to rationalize why they, right. Why they may have acted in this one accidental incident that just like sparked something for them. And so it's just interesting to see how Mm. in the U S we, we find these ways to rationalize violence that white folks commit against BIPOC folks constantly. Yeah. And somehow we failed that white boy, but you know, the, you know, person of color is a person, you know, a, because of his environment or something. No, no, know? no. They're a criminal, right? Like they're always like, oh yeah, he shoplifted a cigarette once. And it's like, that mm. was clearly, you know, a reason for you to execute him on the street. Right. Right. Or, yeah, or he I shouldn't know, be right. holding a toy gun. It looked real, you know, like yeah. and just any reasoning that they can give and, you know, but yes. the white folk, we failed them. Right. But the white folk who's holding a real gun. Right. And exactly. just, and just and like, just you know, massacred. committed a mass shooting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What what are some things from the documentary uh, that you were not aware of before watching it? Something new that you learned? What, I, you know, what was very interesting to me was that Vincent Chen was actually an adoptee from China. Mm. And that was something that was very interesting to me. And, you know, wondering about being an adoptee, how does that frame your experience? I mean, yes, he was he was pretty young. He was four when he came to the United States. But even so, you know, like, um, I thought that was something that was really interesting that, that I was not aware of, and it, but it added this level of like of like deep sadness in a sense too, because it wasn't just like he was someone's son; it was someone like it was it was like deeper. Yeah, you know, they loved him, you know, and and I think there's like that added complexity of sadness in it. So you know, I thought that was something that was very interesting and very gripping for me. You would like blame yourself, right? Like, why would I bring a child here? Absolutely. That <laughs> yeah, absolutely. yeah. Something new that I learned was that the first two um, police officers who responded to the crime um, were both black men. Mm -hmm. Um, That one of the dancers who like largely overheard um, the interactions or the altercations between Evans and Chin was also black. And then during the actual trial, neither none of them were brought in. Um, as witnesses, mm-hmm. many of them weren't even informed about the decision that had happened or, you know, that the trial was taking place. Um, and yeah. something that really struck me was, um, I think, at, in the federal um, court case, they, I want to make sure I get my facts right from what I, from the documentary, but I believe they, the jury had ruled that, um several people were not reliable witnesses. And it just so happened to be that all the unreliable witnesses were people of color. And then Jesus. the one person that they did deem who was a reliable ri- witness was um, the dancer who was a white woman. <laughs> I think it was like Racine something. Or like yes. Yeah. And so again, one of those really smart moments, I think in the documentary where, you know, they didn't say that outright, but just, yeah. The way that it was being shown was, you know, the the prosecutor saying like, oh, you know, there were all these people who also overheard, but then the jury ultimately deemed them unreliable witnesses. But we did listen to this one white dancer, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, what was the difference there? Like so you I can't think, help but be like, hmm. It was hard not to draw the parallels. 
Uh, right. Along with that, just like the yeah, the travesty of not getting the key witnesses. Also, the family they didn't know anything during the trial. They heard of the decision like I think it was like day of or day before, so they weren't involved at all. They didn't even bother with them. That was something that I, that I learned. Also, I think what I learned and appreciated is and that the documentary seemed to do intentionally was focus in on Lily and the the mom and how much strength she had to have to endure the whole the whole situation and like going to these rallies and speaking time and time again kind of advocating for justice i think that was something that was just not aware to me that's right do not cross a woman you know like a woman scorn you know like yeah. basically I, especially a mom you know and and i really appreciate that the directors did such a great job with the editorial aspect of that and just really like you said like propping her up and giving her that platform i think one of the other things that was really interesting was um helen helen's you know she had um had, oh, yeah. a, had a chance to well uh, first off huge fan of her she is absolutely amazing um oh, gee. Yes, and one of the a quick tidbit about Helen uh, is that she was actually one of the first couples, same sex couples, to get married when same sex marriage was legalized in California, and that was back in two thousand eight. Um, one of the things that she brought up was about how she had a chance to actually read the psych valve for the, the to the to the defendants, and how they basically was saying like the psych valve deemed them to be, you know, really violent, needing them to go through like. Detoxica- detoxification because they, you know, like they're, you know, belligerent and things like that. And it was just like, but they didn't take any of that into consideration, you know, and, and that regard. And I thought that was really interesting that, that, you know, they brought that up about, you know, about mm. needing to make sure that they're building this character profile of these people because everyone else, all of their friends and family and neighbors were saying how loving and sweet and kind these guys were not a racist bone in their body and it's like no you know that's just not the case of like when you're trying to take a look about who they are and what led them to this incident i would say they can say they're not racist because they can't recognize the racism inside themselves so they are just missing you know any racist tidbit or red flag and going oh i think that too i'm not racist right (laughs) um and the second thing i want to say is the corruption is mundane, right? Like that's what we're talking about is that you can easily say that these witnesses are not reliable, but no one asks you why they're not reliable. And you can easily say that these men are men of great character, but there's no definition of what is great character. And that's what racism is. And that's why it's so difficult to push the needle, so to speak, in a different direction, because we are talking about these things that are invisible to the people who are, you know, the aggressors. And and sometimes they have an awareness of it. But I would say, oftentimes that awareness can be surface level. Mm -hmm. And so as far as what was what I didn't know, was how glib this man was about the murder. (laughs) Um, Because he talking about Ronald Evans? Yes, yes. Um, I, I don't feel that he has come to to understand the gravity of it, even in like the moments where he's being recorded, right? He's just like, oh yeah, real unfortunate situation there. Yeah, he's like, ah, don't know who that know, was. Who did that? Yeah. <laughs> that was me. And yeah. it's like, 
so you didn't afterwards like have a self reflection about what you yourself are capable of, right? Because um, I I would expect much more apology or a, a much less self assured sort of like general aura, right? <laughs> yeah. But but that's what it was. So. Yeah. But he doesn't actually apologize or feel regret no, until no. like he and in, well into his eighties, and that's like recent you know within like the last year and it's just kind of ridiculous to kind of see like you know i I don't know like how big of an ego do you have to have how like guarded are you to be able to be like so self-assured that like it's not you i i I don't know you know like this delusion so the other thing for me is that i i am involved or not involved i would say but like i read deeply into carceral politics and the united states sort of like position as the country that incarcerates the most people in the world, the most women in the world, and has some of the worst, you know, jail and prison conditions. Like they're decommissioning records in New York because people get mm-hmm. they people can't breathe because there's methane leaks. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's cruel and unusual. And so while I understand, you know, aspects of like compassion when it comes to dealing with the prison system and the justice system. And I'm actually appreciative if he is ever able to come to an understanding of the scope and like severity of what he did. What's important for me is is the people in the middle who are able to go, oh, no, 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 like nothing bad happened. And we're just going to not think about this. We're not going to have this conversation because that means the reflection never happens. The accountability never happens. Yes. And and all of that. So exactly. Mm. You know, that's that justice is not necessarily, you know, like I'm really glad to be brought up about the, you know, a prison complex. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not even so much about imprisoning him. It is about the accountability or lack thereof. It is about the, the fact that there is no no self-reflection that and and or no rehabilitation, mm-hmm. right? Like there he never has a chance to have to actually pay for what he's done in in his self uh, in a self-reflective community outreach kind of way of like being rehabilitated and understanding like how to be able to heal those broken mm-hmm. pieces. And I think that's probably the most frustrating aspect of it is that he never has to come to that recognition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. But I really do think he should have spent jail time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I, I think that's the thing. Jail like, time would have been, been, so there's been very helpful. Yeah, there's retribution as punishment. And then there's things that need to come after punishment. And that's like atonement or redemption, because we're not a country that kills people for their crimes, right? And I'm sure we have different views on that. But my personal view is that we don't do that. And I think that that's a good thing, because if we did do that, then... Yeah, no corporate punishment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, ton of... Who's it going to affect? It's not going to impact the white people, right? It's the black people that are in jail. Right. Right. So this is, you know, like we're in a very human system. But the point is, I'm looking for that. What what comes after the punishment? I don't want to just stop at we punish him. I want to see everyone involved sort of reach a place of I did something which requires forgiveness. Mm. How do I grow, Mm. grow my awareness and then also my actions to then reflect it? Because right now we're doing activism work. We're talking about this. But then nothing's going to change if if people don't change, you know? Yeah. And Pragya, what it sounds like you're naming too is the importance and power of transformative justice and not just punitive justice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I wonder what happens to a person 
in their body, in their psyche, when they commit such an incredible act of violence, and then find ways to rationalize that and to push that down, right? Not only in you know, maybe you know their beliefs or the ways that they interact with other people, but just like in and of themselves and who they are, and then how that seeps out in all of these different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this really incredible book called My Grandmother's Hands by um, Resma Menekim that talks about the impact of generational trauma um, on our bodies and how it just passes down from generation to generation. We were just talking about how like this was only 40 years ago, you know, like people who are alive then and who are part of this, like they're still alive now and today and they've impacted their communities and shaped it and their relationships, the children that they've raised and shaped those beliefs as well. And so just to, you know, to what you were saying, when we don't process that, when we don't have an awareness of it, when we don't also physically process and move that trauma, that violence, either that was that we that was committed or committed to, against us, that continues to perpetuate in our communities, in our relationships, in our interactions, in our beliefs. Um, and that's how racism continues to be so alive and well, even if, um, yeah, even if people say like, oh, I'm not, I'm not racist, like I haven't did it but those threads of it and the foundations of it are woven literally into the fabric of of who we are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Think think about the pr- perspective of a Helen Zia, right? It happened then, like she's been at the forefront of this whole movement, and then fast forward to today, like I think from our perspective, she's kept it cool, calm, and collected because she's just a boss. But definitely, like having all of that, experiencing all that, witnessing all of that, has to have some kind of effect to a person. Absolutely. Right, right. And, and, you know, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about the intersections because, you know, I'm in San Francisco all the time and San Francisco was seeing a lot of, you know, the fear that people were experiencing when initially during COVID there was so many like stabbings and, you know, brutalizing and shout out to that granny that fought back and just kicked ass. That was cool. That's <laughs> <Yeah. right. laughs> yeah. She was awesome. But yeah, uh, like, the reason I'm... That. Yeah, the reason I bring that up, though, is because um, San Francisco's, I think he was the DA, I'm not sure, um, or maybe prosecutor, but Chesa Bowden was really um, lax yeah, on on a lot of crimes. And one of the things that he didn't do was prosecute some of these hate crimes as hate crimes. And that was on the principle of reparative justice, which I think, you know, that's something we need to talk about. <laughs> like, what in the world? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, let's make a bre- let's make a benchmark though first, right? Like, there was right. no benchmark established of what should <laughs> we you know, start from as far as reparative justice and like, right? You know, so yeah. <laughs> so so then we're just like saying like, oh, that was an assault by a person who was in a bad you know uh, place, and and I understand that, and a lot of the you know violence in San Francisco was not from like you know white people specifically; it was from different races. But at the same time, if we can't, if we can sacrifice recognizing something as a hate crime in our, uh, you know, pursuit of a higher sort of like, I don't know, like a higher concept of justice, I'm, I'm really not sure where we stand, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that definitely is, I think, one of the clear threads for me of how Vincent Chin's case is also so relevant today, which is that the laws often were created without us. And when I say us, I mean us as as women, us as API, us as historically oppressed people, 
They were created without us in mind, and yet we often have to prove ourselves according to them. Mm -hmm. And so many times, I think, especially, you know, since the rise of anti-Asian violence during COVID, we hear our community advocating for, like, this was a hate crime. This was racially motivated. Even if the letter of the law is saying that there's not enough evidence to prove that it is, like, we know that it is. Mm -hmm. And how dismissive it is for laws and the criminal justice system to ignore or erase our lived experiences. Like, we know what happened to Vincent Chin was a hate crime. Mm -hmm. Period. We know what happened in the Atlanta shooting was a hate crime. The end. But for (laughs) us to have to constantly put ourselves and our bodies and our lives on the line to prove that is exhaust it's exhausting and so mm-hmm. yeah i think just just seeing that and seeing how we're we continue to have to like prove our existence and our value and the ways that systemic racism impacts us every day yeah it should be i mean noted too that ronald even they also said said that according to one of the dancers he said something to like we're losing our jobs because of you people. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the testimonies that was ex- allowed into the case. So that is part of the trial. And of course he was like, look, I don't remember saying that <laughs> kind of stuff. You know, I was drunk. I was blocked out drunk. Yeah. One thing what's interesting is like, you know, for the most part, I, I think everyone knows universally like the word racist is, is bad. Right. And so the idea of being labeled racist is like Mm -hmm. an attack on your character. And I think that's Mm -hmm. something that people really don't want to confront and say like, Oh no, I can't be racist. Right. Because the label is something that is really scary to them to then to have to admit, like we're at the point now in 2022 where we're have, where we have legislation in place to rewrite um, our school curriculum to remove the word slavery because it makes white people uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, what mental gymnastics do we have to go through to be able to come to a place where we can't even admit that it's our ancestors were slave owners, right? Or not our ancestors, but it because it makes you feel bad. It's something that I don't want to hear being taught to my children and things like that. Like, mm-hmm. I. The delusion, <laughs> you know. Olympics, right. Olympics, gymnastics level, <laughs> mental gymnastics. That's where we're at. Involuntary. Oh. I think they said it's called involuntary. Um, Somersaults. Rehoming or something like that. It was like that. Right? Yes. Right, right. But I want to say that the severity of the reaction is because viewing themselves as bad people or as capable of something bad seems to cause like a fracture in their psyche. Like right. this is such a culture that is obsessed with like virtue, right? Like purity. And so rather than to address that we all have our flaws and we all have our, you know, ups and our downs and our whatever. Except for me, I'm perfect. Except for Ray, who is perfect, I can confirm. Um, (laughs) That, you know, we have to maintain the perfection and therefore we cannot uh, address these things within ourselves. And um, I think that's also where you get something where, it's like you people and us, like you just, mm-hmm. you know, you get black and white thinking and we just like replicate it across the board mm. and it leads mm-hmm. us to like where we're at. Yeah. Know? And perfectionism is one of the characteristics of white supremacy culture. It's something that I think I'm always trying to root out. I'm realizing, man, mm-hmm. 
in the air we breathe and the water <laughs> we drink. But yeah. I mean, again, you think about 400 plus years of this country being founded on on violence, on abuse, mm-hmm. on unspeakable yes. horrors that again, if you haven't processed that or come to terms in the awareness and then the reconciliation and repair that needs to happen mm-hmm. around this violence that has happened, that, yeah, that was perpetrated by by you, by your ancestors, by, you know, whoever, all of that just keeps getting shoved down. All that trauma just continues to get compressed in white people's mm-hmm. bodies. And then so to to even acknowledge that, I I might be racist. I might have <laughs> right. done. I might have done or said a racist thing, like you said, Pragya. Like it creates that fracture into this huge depth that I think a lot of folks aren't ready to mm-hmm. to explore, um, and how it like is all coming and showing up like in present day. Mm-hmm. Right. And that violence that's projected outwards is just violence that can't be projected inwards because it would destroy right <laughs> so it's like that it comes out as anger or whatever punch, punch themselves yeah well right but the other thing i want to say is like slavery is not in the past right now it's just in indonesia it's mm. in india mm. it's in caves it's in africa you know so like there's that aspect too right and even in our carceral justice system today oh right, right? Yeah. Right. In the United States, the upholding of incarceration is the upholding of slavery. Right. Yes. You're getting people who are having to do and, and there these are big corporations. Whole Foods, Victoria's Secret, like mm-hmm. all, all Walmart, all of these co- corporations. AT&T. A- yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Who are benefiting from free labor from incarcerated people. They're like, oh my God, sorry. I'm getting goosebumps just talking about this because <laughs> I'm so happy to be able to talk about this with you all because it's yeah. so important for us to understand and be cognizant of how we, if we do not talk about and and try to dismantle the the you know white supremacy, uh, imperialism, colonialism, we continue to uphold these systems, right? Mm-hmm. And if not slavery, we look at how segregation is still alive and well today mm-hmm. in our housing system, in our education system, right? Schools now are actually more segregated than they were before. They're just sneakier. There's just sneakier rules and ways around right. it, and it gets harder and harder to to name. But it's mm-hmm. still there. But also recently, I think, and I'm not sure because I, I have to follow up on this. But Tennessee passed something where it's illegal not to let Jews into uh, establishments that uh, are paid for by uh, tax dollars, as long as there is an establishment that does allow Jews that follows the same thing. So that that's. Purely segregation. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and Yo, I think that Amer- was like literally yesterday. <laughs> okay, America really built the weirdest time machine back like 50 years. And I'm just like, where did this was not the time machine I asked for? This is not the hot tub time machine that I envisioned someone it, creating. It has, like, it has something to do with the multiversal movies yeah. that have been coming out. It kind I'm of like, warped oh. America. Some, yeah, some other realities have collapsed and now yeah, we're in this like yeah. awful yes. time zone. Time I'm like, I need, right. I, want, I want out of this timeline somebody come back yes, to me please. you have to keep doing that mandela test and see if that one color is Bairnsty green or purple Bairnsty. yeah exactly like which timeline am i in yeah i'm like you what know? weird what really weird thing do i need to do that like michelle yo did and yes. everything everywhere all at once to be like okay let me transport to like this other <laughs> version of myself and yes. hopefully a better version of the universe it, yeah i don't know it may involve you know, sitting on a huge <laughs> butt plug. <laughs> <Jumping> up, <laughs> butt plug. 
Okay, let me just get to the IRS building real quick. (laughs) How far are you willing to go to change to correct the time? That's the question. It's all about sacrifice, baby. (laughs) This is for everyone. Ah! Ray's Ray's like, I'll sacrifice first. I volunteer. volunteer. See, he's perfect. Like he said, there's no flaws. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Saints over here. Um... I I I do want to close it out here, kind of with the final segment, kind of bring it back. I mean, I think we've all been bouncing back and forth between what happened during the '80s to today. I did want to kind of close it with this, just like this question, and kind of bring it more broadly. If there's other examples that we see today of quote unquote Americans feeling like foreigners, quote unquote, as well, because really most of the time immigrants who actually come here are also Americans and have been in this country for a long time. But what other cases can we see that Amer- white Americans are feeling like their jobs are being taken? I mean, I'll go ahead and get to, I'll start with one in particular. I actually live in in a city um, that was established back in the 1800s during the gold rush era, where it was one of the first Chinatowns. Um, so it's Antioch and way out there in Antioch. east mm-hmm. of East Bay. Um, <laughs> peripheral Bay area. Yeah, exactly. Um, but this was a, a, Antioch is a really good example of how it was a sundown town for, for the Chinese people in particular. Um, you know, back in, uh, 1876, um, basically the Chinese were banned from being able to walk the city streets, um, after sunset. And so in order to be able to get to their jobs, you know, the Chinese residents had actually built a series of underground tunnels and they still exist today. And in fact, some, um, engineers have looked at it and said that these, uh, structures would p- be able to stand, uh, for centuries, basically, mm-hmm. you know, with the brick and things like that, they were able mm-hmm. to, to, to create back in the 1800s. And so the Chinese were had then built this um, Chinatown, which is a cluster of houseboats um, that were made for the immigrant settlements. And actually, even up until like the 1970s, Antioch was conti- still continue, continue to be considered a sundown town, um, which is kind of insane to think about, especially here in the Bay Area. Mm. And that basically what ended up happening was that um, the 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 Chinese people the the white people were so like just upset about like you know the Chinese people being here living next to their homes um, having access to be able to do you know these jobs and things like that um, and so they ended up running them out of town and and burning down their houses and so all the way up until the 1960s. The white population made up 99.6% of residents here in Antioch, right? 1960s. And, and this is over 100 years past. So only last year did Antioch, the uh, mayor, actually publicly apologize for the travesties of that mm-hmm. time. They became like the first uh, city mm-hmm. to actually acknowledge the fact of, of these crimes against the Chinese immigrants. And so, you know, I thought that was a really interesting kind of thing. Like, we still have those even to this day, we still have um, uh, people just like not acknowledging the, these these travesties, um, not apologizing, and mm-hmm. and where they've where they've done these things. And you know, I happen to be Asian, so you know, <laughs> like living here, I'm helping to build out that census uh, to make it more diverse. Uh, but you know, I think that's something that's really interesting is, is that we still have the hallmarks of 
these injustices against like, mm-hmm. you know, the a- API community. Right. And San Jose and Santa Ana followed suit. And San Francisco celebrated when Chinatown was destroyed in the earthquake. They That's wanted right. to push it out. And, you know, right now in New York City, in Manhattan, they're putting up a jail tower that's like, what, 300 stories in the middle of Chinatown. And they're like, that's not going to destroy Chinatown. When you think about how hard it was to get those buildings, the fact that all of that building ownership is Chinese and it helps support, right. you know, that community. It's just like, well, Okay, it's not going to destroy Chinatown. I'm sure a jail has never destroyed, you know, a suburb or yeah. like a, a city center. Oh, I, one of the reasons why I actually brought up that question is because I, I kid you not, this happened about about last week. I think so. It's kind of funny how reading, watching the documentary and preparing for the screening. I was doing laundry for my blankets, and I have to do laundry offsite in this neighborhood, and kind of waiting around so uh, waiting for my laundry to wash and dry and this older white gentleman kind of came up to me I don't know if he was talking to me but he was saying something looked kind of whacked out of his mind or something or just like lonely to talk but I, I heard him saying this neighborhood has changed so much this mm-hmm. street used to be used to have more quote unquote like American businesses I don't know what he meant by that and I'm like uh, these are I was like, these businesses are American. I don't know what you mean by American, but I think I knew what he meant by it. And I'm like, do you know where you live? You're like in Oakland. (laughs) This is like one of the most diverse cities. But it's just interesting to see, to still hear that kind of sentiment of people still feeling like foreigners are coming to take over this land. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. you're so far behind. And also it's like, these people are probably exercising the quintessential American dream of coming here and starting their own businesses and running their own businesses, starting a family and whatnot. And just because they don't look like you, you're not qualifying them or saying that they're quote unquote American. I was just like, okay, let me just grab my blankets and get the hell out of here. (laughs) I just want to name that whenever white folks feel like, you know, foreigners or other people are taking what they believe is rightfully theirs, that colonial settlers first took everything from the indigenous peoples and tribes of this land. Mm -hmm. And that... European folks have been going into other countries for centuries and taking what taking things from them, taking not just possessions or jobs, but taking people mm-hmm. that they believe is rightfully theirs. And so it's so fascinating to me when, you know, I hear white folks saying, or, you know, even this question, what are ways that they, you know, white people feel like foreigners are, are taking their jobs or taking what they belong to them? When white folks were the foreigners who took so much from us, our ancestors in our ancestral lands. They're rejected. And yeah, exactly. Um, And I think a lot of it comes back down to power, right? And I think it's this desire to have power over others. And that's ultimately what racism is as well. It's this power dynamic of those who are superior um, or have somehow been deemed superior because of, you know, identities that that they hold mm-hmm. over others. And so I think this fear of, oh, someone's taking what's mine, I'm is this fear of I'm losing power over something. Mm-hmm. And and as soon as that power feels like it's slipping, then the grip tightens and it's this desire to pull that back. Um, and so whether that's jobs, I think we see that, like Renee said, like with housing or land, we see white flight all the time. You know, as soon as Black folks or Asian folks start moving into a community, 
white folks take off, they're like, well, we only want what is best or what is pure, what is ours. You know, what they're so afraid of losing is what they did to so many people, countries for centuries. And also, like, there's there's an aspect here where we talk about America. So we, we often forget that Asians come from in Asia. So I was reading something really random the other time, and it was describing indigenous people. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm an indigenous people to India. But, like, you know, I was born there. I grew up in that country with that culture mm-hmm. and those traditions. And and we forget that because they also, um, this, this whole structure of white supremacy kind of... Um, makes us split from our like from from holding both identities from holding like this like we have all of this culture and community and then we're also american it's not one or the other it's this is america and we build it we are the fabric of it yeah okay that's going to conclude our conversation here i first want to thank praga renee christine i i feel like i just kind of sat back and just listened and learned (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is the best that's the best part like that's why when you're i don't so have perfect, to care right? yeah that's <laughs> true exactly you, you don't say anything you can't be wrong if you don't say anything so that's <laughs> that's my strategy in this conversation no um thank you so much i feel like this was a very important documentary to watch important conversation to have i think the whole vincent chin incident should not be forgotten regardless of how many years removed we are Again, if you are in the LA area, we highly encourage you come by to watch the screening of Who Killed Vincent Chin that is happening on Thursday, July 14th. I will be there. Christine will be there. She will actually be. I will be moderating the panel. So we'd love yes. to see you all there. Yes, yes, indeed. So I, really this recording, this episode is like a prep to the big moderation conversation that she's having because she's having a conversation with some big players in the panel. Legends, legends. So I feel very honored. Thank you all. Tune in next time for another episode of Real Asian Podcasts. Peace. Bye. Bye. Bye.